Welcome to the seventh episode of Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, we brave Room 106, the chamber of horrors into which all new planning information is dumped, and extricate the key things you need to know. The podcast is called Room 106 after Room 101, the chamber in George Orwell's novel 1984 that contains a prisoner's deepest fears. We're suggesting that, for ourselves and for some of our audience, the prospect of getting your head round a new policy announcement or court decision can awaken a sense of dread. It's called Room 106 instead of Room 101, in honour of the protracted Section 106 negotiations that can take place when councils are trying to agree how much developers should pay for infrastructure. So, coming up, the key news stories of the last fortnight and why they might be important for you. In particular, we'll be looking at the levelling up white paper and asking what it means for planning. But I'll also be briefly rounding up the other key planning news of the past fortnight and highlighting one of the quirkiest stories from the past two weeks. Finally, in the deep dive section, I'll talk to planning special correspondent Joey Gardner about his recent report on the challenges that local planning authority departments face in the coming year. By the end of the show, you should know enough not to fear your boss cornering you at the coffee machine with awkward questions. About the levelling up white paper, at least. So, time to face the music. Ready to go in? I guess so. Well, here we are again in Room 106, the repository in which all new planning information collects. It's fuller than ever. Yes, looks like it's been topped up by the levelling up white paper. It would have been a lot easier if they'd only added pages with new funding commitments on them. Yes, indeed. Hang on a minute, there's somebody else in here, digging through the white paper. It's Joey. Hello. Ah, oh, we weren't expecting to see you till later, in a different part of the Room 106 catacomb. But you've been looking at the white paper as well. Yes, I'm writing about one or two aspects of it this week. Fantastic. Well, it's very lucky that we bumped into you. Why not join us for this discussion, and then we won't have to traverse Room 106 for the deep dive. So, John... What's the really important things for the planning audience to take away from the white paper? Well, it's a big document. It's 330 pages. So I'm sure that um, policy watchers would have been busy over the weekend trying to um, digest it. So by levelling up, the government means rebalancing the economy away from London and the South East and improving outcomes in other parts of the country. So in the white paper, it talks about 12 national missions to be achieved by 2030. And these include rejuvenating the most run-down town centres and communities across the country. It talks about every part of England getting a London-style devolution deal if they want to, and uh, narrowing the disparities between the top and the worst performing areas in terms of economic development and other factors. Fantastic. And so all of those sound like they might have a bearing on, on planning. What do the government say about actually measuring success on these um, criteria? So the paper talks about these missions being underpinned by a series of metrics to track progress over the years. And the government said it will introduce laws so that there's a statutory duty for it to publish an annual report updating the public on the progress of these missions. And as part of that, one of the objectives is that by 2030, it wants people's satisfaction with their town centres and, and engagement in local culture and community to have risen in every area of the UK and the gap between the top performing areas and the others closing. Okay, that's quite interesting to think there could be a government metric on that. 
So in terms of what it specifically means for planning, what's in there that's of core interest to um, people who work in planning? Well, one thing that the paper says is that local communities will continue to have a meaningful say on individual planning applications and that that say will be improved through new digital technologies. Uh, It also talks about improving engagement in planning decisions and, interestingly, encouraging more accessible hybrid models for planning committees in England. So most of our readers will be very much aware of the fact that um, the government temporarily introduced or allowed councils hold virtual council meetings, including planning committees, after the COVID pandemic. But then those temporary rules ran out last year and um, a lot of people in the sector were very unhappy about that. So they will no doubt be um, encouraged by um, this support for hybrid models. But by hybrid, that means a sort of mixture of virtual and um, face-to-face elements. So it seems to be that this is now government policy, that hybrid planning committees are here to stay? Yes, I presume they'll have to introduce some laws or or regulations to actually implement it, though. So going back to what the white paper says about a meaningful say on individual planning applications being retained, does that once and for all rule out the possibility of zones in which outline permission is effectively granted by the local plan as per the white paper proposal? I think that's certainly what campaigners against those proposals are hoping. However, the discussions that I've been having with people, when you actually look at the text, which talks about retaining the text of the levelling up white paper, that is, which talks about retaining a meaningful say on individual planning applications, actually, there's nothing in there that necessarily or specifically says that that will definitely happen because it all depends on what your definition of the phrase a meaningful say is. The government might well regard a meaningful say as giving local communities the opportunity to comment on the form that planning permission takes, but not necessarily oppose the principle of a development going ahead, which is, I think, what has been so key to people's opposition to the measures in the white paper. The point is, I think the government has, in this wording, has retained a a fair degree of flexibility for itself. Okay, that's interesting, because I would have seen it as, as I understood it, in the white paper, in growth zones, for certain kinds of project, there wouldn't necessarily have had to be a planning application. There would have been a some kind. I, I'm not sure if it was fully fleshed out, but it was that you would have had your outline merely by conforming to however the local plan worked in those areas. You would effectively have had your outline permission. Well, I think the point is, is it was never exactly fleshed out, and we don't know in this phrasing. There just simply isn't enough detail to work out to what extent this differs or coheres with what was put in the planning white paper. Now, while saying that I think the government has retained a fair degree of flexibility for itself, I think it also seems very clear that the rhetoric is very different, the mood music is very different, and most people do still expect that the growth zones certainly in the form they were originally envisaged, are likely to be dropped. But I don't think this line in the levelling up white paper is itself necessarily the proof that people were looking for. Interesting. Okay, John, so that's um, some development management changes discussed in the the levelling up white paper. 
What about plan making? The government also promised to introduce simpler and shorter local plans. It talks about greater empowerment of communities to shape regeneration and development plans. Uh, It talks about widening the accessibility of neighbourhood planning, of allowing residents to shape their streets using local design codes, and of increasing engagement with infrastructure providers in plan making. And um, alongside that, interestingly, it talks about further greening the greenbelt and empowering local leaders and communities to reimagine their urban green space and improve access for communities who lack it. They also talked about improved green belts around towns and cities. What do we think is meant by further greening the green belt? Uh, it's not entirely clear. It appears to be related to ecological improvements. So it's mentioned in a part of the white paper that also mentions that also calls for securing of further environmental improvements. So it may not involve planning policy changes. And then there's a lot of it which focuses on, as you would expect, on left behind places and what could be done about them. You know, what elements of, of, of that agenda are core planning elements? So in the paper, the government says it wants to see a more positive approach to employment land in national policy to support the provision of jobs. Okay. And what do you think that might mean? Well, it's not entirely clear at this point, but I think we're looking at things like protecting employment land and giving it perhaps giving it greater weight in decision making. We do know that lots of employment land, particularly industrial land, has been lost in London to higher value housing development. And there's a real concern there about the loss of industrial land. In some quarters, people believe that too much weight has been given in national policy to housing development. Obviously, the white, the levelling up white paper talks about focusing development on brownfield land. So there may be a bit of a tension between that objective and the need to protect employment land and to protect jobs. As much of the brownfield land that's going to be redeveloped for housing may be industrial land. What about the sort of broader regeneration points? Can you can you just give us a sort of overview of, of what the white paper proposes in terms of sort of galvanising regeneration? Yes. So the paper says that the government wants to give councils more tools to regenerate land. And that includes enhancing compulsory purchase powers to support town centre regeneration and giving local authorities the power to require landlords of empty shops to uh, fill them if they've been left vacant for too long. And there are also specific programmes. One of the announcements from the government before the paper was actually published was about a regeneration programme in 20 parts of the country. And we know that those places include Sheffield and Wolverhampton, but it's unclear what the other 18 areas are. The government said that those areas are going to be prioritised when it comes to this new 1.5 billion brownfield fund that was announced in the autumn budget. One thing planners and developers will be interested in is that the government said in these areas that it's going to be undertaking what it calls ambitious King's Cross style regeneration projects, transforming derelict urban sites into beautiful communities. And Homes England, is uh, they're changing the role of Homes England, is that right? Well, at the moment, Homes England is the government's housing delivery agency, but the white paper talks about broadening the remit of Homes England so that it's not just about delivering new homes, but also looking at delivering regeneration of large areas of towns and cities, particularly as they cope with the challenge of the rise of online shopping and other economic trends. Okay, well, thanks very much for that, John. Joey, you've been looking at this as well. Do we know anything about these other 18 places that are going to be supposedly transformed apart from Sheffield and Wolverhampton? Uh, I'm afraid not, really, Richard. I've not got much to report. The government themselves isn't naming any of the other 18 places. It's also not specifying a process by which 
those other 18 places are going to be identified. So it's not like we've got a um, prospectus or anything for local authorities to bid against. The sense appears to be that the government will select those themselves, but we don't know the criteria that it will use. So we just know that there will be some more announcements forthcoming at some point. The idea seems to be that these 18 places will get to share out an amount from the 1.5 billion brownfield fund that has been put behind this. But how much other funding will also be uh, invested into these areas and how much resource via this new beefed up uh, Home to England role will also go into them. It, It really isn't that clear at the moment. It does seem very likely that all of this focus on regeneration will lead to local authorities further prioritising brownfield sites in urban areas over greenfield sites because the rhetoric does all seem to be about brownfield here. What else is there in there which is of sort of key interest to planners? So there's also a confirmation in there that the government is still keen on introducing a new infrastructure levy as part of a Shake up of developer contributions. So, in the planning white paper, they talked about replacing the current system of Section 106 agreements and the community infrastructure levy with a new infrastructure levy. And the uh, leveling up white paper has said this new infrastructure levy will enable local authorities to capture value from development more efficiently, securing the affordable housing and infrastructure that communities need. Okay, so something that we knew was supposed to be coming, but the fact that it's been re-announced in this levelling up white paper means that it hasn't dropped off the agenda. Yes, that's right. In fact, early this month, the housing minister in the House of Commons talked, also reiterated the government's commitment to um, a new infrastructure levy. But up until then, since Michael Gove took over as the housing secretary, we haven't had that commitment. So it's quite significant. Okay. What does it say about devolution? So there's a lot in there about devolution. Some people may remember this. Originally, the government was going to publish a devolution white paper before that was rebranded as the uh, levelling up white paper. So it says that by 2030, every part of England that wants one will have a devolution deal with powers at or approaching the highest level of devolution and a simplified long-term funding settlement. The paper also sets out a new devolution framework with a clear menu of options for places in England that wish to unlock the benefits of devolution. There's an objective in there to agree further mayoral combined authority deals and inviting various areas to begin negotiating what it calls county deals. So they're devolution deals across counties. So do we read that as being a pointing the way to more strategic planning across current local authority boundaries? Well, there's nothing specifically about strategic planning in the white paper. But some people in the sector definitely see this as um, see the proposals in there as implicitly supportive of reviving strategic planning structures. So covering larger than local areas. And that could be, and some commentators suggested that could be encouraging more partnerships between neighbouring local authorities that are based on a, a regional, sub-regional economic geography. So we already have that in Oxfordshire, for example. And I guess the fact that there are multiple references in the white paper when talking about devolution, to talk about the highest level of devolution deal and London-style deals. We all know that planning has been part of the devolution deals which have devolved the most power. So it seems reasonable to 
expect that there might be a willingness to devolve planning power, but it is interesting that it's not actually mentioned. Yes, that's right. Obviously, the London mayor has um, significant planning powers, plan making and call-in powers. So you'd expect, if we're talking about the, the highest level of devolved powers, then similar powers would be granted to other parts of the country. Okay, so how, how do the government say they're going to take this forward? So the white paper says the government will introduce legislation to underpin the changes alongside wider planning measures, which is interesting. Okay, well, that's enough on the levelling up white paper for now. John, what else has been going on in uh, in the last couple of weeks? Well, one of our biggest stories of the last fortnight was the news that uh, House Builder Barrett Developments has bought one of the UK's most well-known land promoters, Gladman Developments, in a £250 million deal. And Barrett said it hoped this would um, help boost its housing delivery levels. Another big story is that the um, Housing Minister in a House of Commons debate on planning enforcement has described government plans to clamp down on the misuse of retrospective applications as a key focus of his department. And he said he's considering greater use of fines in such cases. Okay. People can um, find out about these stories in more detail by going to planningresource.co.uk. But anything else that particularly stands out from the last couple of weeks? Yes. Another announcement from the Housing Minister, Christopher Pincher, was new performance measures for the planning inspectorate for determining appeal cases. And this would see the vast majority of cases determined within six and a half months. As many of our listeners will know, it's the performance of the planning inspectorate in terms of determining appeals on time has been a big issue for a lot of the uh, people using the appeal system. Okay, well, many thanks for that, John and Joey. And of course, more details of all these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. So the great thing is, is that Joey's is here. So we don't have to trek across the wastes of Room 106 in order to do our deep dive. So, John, if I can leave you for a bit to keep on sifting through the news. And, Joey, can I turn to you and talk to you about the in-depth article that we published earlier this month, written by you under the headline, Planning Officers Under Pressure. You're looking in detail at the pressures faced by local authority planning departments. This has suddenly become a very hot topic. Can you tell us why? Well, I think it's a a confluence of different factors, actually, Richard. I mean, very clearly, the specific interest, I think, has to some extent been sparked by a blog, which became widely shared on social media and, and got a lot of officers, I guess, engaged writing their kind of first-hand accounts of, I guess, the misery in some cases of working in local authority planning departments who are suffering from a lack of resources. But the actual real-world position that's that's making resources such a hot-button issue is this combination of, of kind of chronic long-term underfunding from over a decade of austerity, which appears to... I guess, to have been brought even deeper into a crisis by a combination of an upsurge in planning applications, particularly householder applications, people having to work from home and therefore not having the support that they're used to or expect from workers in the office. And according to some testimony, a kind of increasingly divisive 
culture, I guess, in the world at large and, and also potentially within local authorities as well, where it's increasingly divided between uh, those who are making applications and those who are having to determine application. And all of that is getting much more political. And in some cases, it sounds uh, kind of quite nasty, really. Really interesting, Joey. So just in terms of you talked about sort of decreasing funding, what are the figures as, as far as that's concerned? Well, there are a number of different issues here in terms of the data that are helpful. If we look at the budget over the last 10 years, you can you can kind of cut this in different ways. But whatever way you look at it, we're talking about very sharp falls or very significant falls in budgets over the last decade. Anything between 25 and 60 percent really, depending on how you cut it. And this is for English local authority planning departments, is it? This is for English local authority planning departments. And one of the biggest factors determining you know, exactly where that number lands is whether you're looking at net spend or gross spend, because planning departments are now increasingly bringing in large amounts of revenue. So while the overall spend on planning services may have fallen by a smaller amount, say as as little as a quarter, actually the element of that which is being funded by the government has fallen much, much more sharply by, as I say, as much as 60%, depending on some estimates. Okay, but even if you factor in the income generating activities, you're still looking at a, do you say a 25% cut or even or more than that? No, that is about as low as you can get the full to be even when you're factoring in those income generating activities. Okay, and that's sorry, that's over what period? That's from 2010-11 to 2020-21 financial year. And what about the uh, the workload figures? What's the data on that? Well, the workload has actually been relatively consistent. It was um, growing in the years prior to the COVID crisis and immediately as, as lockdown hit it dropped but only for a very very short period and then came back again at, at a very kind of consistently high level the thing that is different that we've seen in the last year or so is a big increase in householder applications and that's what i think is causing the concern and some of the difficulties in managing workload a local authority level is suddenly we're getting this influx of lots and lots of small applications, all of which have to be dealt with as people stuck in their houses, uh, you know, the start of um, the COVID crisis have um, contemplated how they might, you know, improve their homes. Okay. And I think you suggested that there's a, um, that this has had an impact on performance. Yes. Performance has until very, very recently, it's remained pretty stable. But the last six-month figure, which runs, uh, I think, from March to September in last year, has seen quite a sharp fall. And it's now at its lowest level for about five years. And this is English planning authorities. And it's the measurement of how quickly they're determining their applications and specifically in terms of what proportion of applications are being determined within the time limits, either the the eight-week time limit for minor applications or the 13-week 
for major applications. Okay, and, and how sort of big a dip have we seen, for instance, on, on major applications? Well, in a way, you you might not regard it as a, uh, you know, it's certainly not, not fallen off a cliff. What we're seeing is a drop from around the mid-80s percent, so around 85% back to around about 80% being determined within the time limit. But what people are telling me is that that, fall in the headline figure masks a much, much more significant drop in performance because actually local authorities do everything they can do to to hit those statutory time limits. And it's the other things that are not measured by those statutory time limits that are being hit more significantly and, and are being subjected to things like agreed time extension. So if a developer agrees to the time extension, it doesn't come under this statistic so or it doesn't come up as having missed the time limit. So it's quite notable that we've got uh, the largest retirement house builder in the UK telling the House of Lords recently that the average period of determining a major application that it puts in from validation to decision is 46 weeks. That's very interesting. And there's a very striking graphic um, in your in your piece about the um, showing the sort of rocketing numbers of uh, planning performance agreements and deadline extensions that are being agreed and um, you know and, and aren't covered by the um, timeliness statistics. And in a way, that's also driven by another factor that I go into that local authorities, while the statutory planning application fees are set by government. The fees for things like planning performance agreements are not regulated by government. And it's been one of the areas that local authorities have also turned to when they're looking at how they can manage their resources. So they are desperate in many cases to to encourage developers to engage in uh, planning performance agreements on a kind of fee-paid basis. And you mentioned, um, I think you sort of touched on working from home as maybe a, an issue which is affecting performance and affecting morale or, or cited as in some quarters, because uh, um, I'm sure for some people, that, uh, as in most environments, probably appreciate some aspects of working from home. But you say it's been cited by some as a reason why morale is dropping and why the job is becoming more difficult. What other factors might be affecting the, the level of performance that planning authorities are, um, are seeing? As I was saying at the start, I think there's a whole load of things that feed into this. And one, one of it is the things that people are talking about uh, stemming from the cuts to resources is just simply the workload. So when the workload gets to a, a certain level, and we're talking about caseloads being cited of you know, 70, 80 applications per officer, the testimony that comes back is that people just simply are spending their time firefighting and dealing with with inquiries on those and, and simply kind of almost managing the expectations of the people that have put in the applications rather than actually dealing with the applications themselves. And then at the same time, you've got this issue of people being isolated, working from home. So, you know, many authorities have moved to using, you know, Teams or whatever the other software is to enable collaboration. But it stops those informal engagements, that quick cross-checking of what shall I do with this application with a senior officer in the on the desk next to you or the room next to you. It stops people collaborating in as straightforward a way 
as they have been able to up, up until this point. And some of the testimony is, is that particularly, I think, for more junior officers who may feel the stress and strain of this more as they're struggling to prove themselves or at that point in their career, they're still feeling like they have to prove them themselves. You know, this is adding quite a significant um, mental health burden or becoming potentially a significant mental health problem for some of those. And there's been testimony about people being signed off with stress and, and all of those really unfortunate impacts that you get when when people are dealing with high workloads. That's interesting, Joey. Okay, well, just sort of rounding things up, what do we know what's likely to happen in the coming year in terms of sort of resources and staffing levels? And how are planning authorities trying to deal with these issues? Well, the local government settlement was relatively well received by local authorities. And under that, funding does go up in the year ahead for local authorities. But the expert expectation from the likes of the RTPI and others is that planning departments are not going to see that rise come through, that the big strains on things like adult social care, etc., are going to mean that that money is diverted elsewhere. And actually, that despite this extra funding, we could be looking, we are likely, in fact, to be looking in many areas at another year of cuts and um, victoria hills talks about she's the rtpi chief executive the RTPI is, is chief executive exactly many planning departments being asked to move from running a service on a cost recovery basis where their fees cover their costs to actually being asked to become profit centers for the rest of the council they're actually expected to generate revenue which is used in other parts of the council so that is effectively a cut to the subsidy that those departments will see. In terms of how planning authorities are dealing with these issues, they're going to be doing more of what they've been doing before, which is cutting back on on anything that is non-statutory, anywhere that they think they can, which often means services such as policy and enforcement, probably means prioritising both those parts of the job which bring in the most revenue, such as chargeable pre-application services or planning performance agreements, and probably means prioritising major decisions as well, which I guess will be welcomed by those putting in major applications, but is meaning, I think, in many cases that um, areas where or people putting in smaller applications, householder applications, or trying to get conditions discharged or smaller issues, less high profile issues, or even trying to get applications validated. Those kind of things are potentially going to suffer even further delays. Right. Okay. Well, the um, the long promised government review of planning resources, which we've talked about several previous times on the, on the podcast, and uh, in particular, the review of allowing uh, authorities to put up planning fees can't come soon enough, I'd suggest. Certainly, that's the feeling that I've been getting from people. Absolutely. But there isn't any sign of it at the moment because it feels like it's tied in with the wider uh, planning reform agenda, which, as we all know, is um, is under review at the moment and the time frame of which is uncertain. Indeed. Joey, thank you very much for that. See you back in room 106 uh, soon, I hope, if that isn't an unkind thing to wish for. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll speak shortly. Fantastic. Good to speak to you, Richard.
Okay, so uh, now to go over to John again so he can select his reader's choice, the apparently inconsequential but widely read article. So, John, what's it going to be this week? Well, Richard, we covered uh, an interesting item today in our newspaper roundup. So Mail Online reports that the former England captain Gary Lineker has uh, installed four air conditioners at his home in southwest London without permission and now he's been forced to apply for retrospective planning permission for it, which is um, quite topical considering um, the housing minister's comments in the House of Commons earlier this month. So the, the council is expected due to make a decision on the application next month. And according to the article, Gary Lineker is confident ahead of the uh, decision, having commissioned a report that found the coolers to be extremely quiet. So we'll have to see whether the council is, is convinced. Yes, that's right. Well, I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great, that's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. Our thanks to producer Daisy Chaku from Rethink Audio. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis, specialist bulletins and our quarterly print magazine, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Bye.